This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is By Learning and Faith. In the first half, Daniel J. Fairbanks and Ross Spencer share their addresses, The Arts, the Sciences, and the Light of the Gospel, and Scholarship and Faith. Then in the second half, Jamie L. Jensen speaks on Faith and Science, Symbiotic Pathways to Truth. Now, some at BYU perceive general education as something to get through quickly so that they can move on to major courses, which uh, they perceive as important for their employment. I was rudely awakened to this fact the first time that I taught a Biology 100 class at BYU. I assumed all of the students would have the same enthusiasm for biology that I had, would be all excited for the class and ready to study. I quickly learned that there were very few students in there who shared that feeling. Uh, Most of them dreaded the course, and it became my challenge to try to find a way to help students recognize the beauty and the wonder of God's creation that we find as we study biology. Now, general education, I believe, is especially important at BYU because a study of the arts and sciences can be, as President Kimball said, bathed in the light and color of the restored gospel. Now, to illustrate this principle, let me share with you a few of my own experiences. In 1978, shortly after returning from my mission, I had the opportunity to take the first of several trips to Italy to work with my grandfather carving marble statues from the pure white crystalline marble that was quarried from the mountains above Carrara. On weekends, we visited the great cathedrals in Europe, and one of the first cathedrals that we visited was one called Santa Maria Novella, which is near the train station in Florence. As we entered the cathedral, the morning sun streamed through the stained glass windows and projected colors along the walls and the pews. Uh, After entering the cathedral, I was drawn to a large fresco painting by the early Renaissance painter Masaccio. This painting depicts the Trinity, and in it we can see God the Father, his arms bearing his son on the cross, And then above Christ's head, the Holy Ghost is represented as a dove. As I gazed on that painting, a strong spirit of reverence came over me, and I remained there quietly admiring it and pondering the concept of the Godhead. In the years that have passed since that time, the image of this painting has often returned to my mind, and each time I feel the same warm feeling that I felt that day in the cathedral. At the time, I was only 21 years old. I knew very little about the history of art. And I later learned, as part of my studies, that this painting was one of the most important paintings in art history, largely because it is the first example of scientific perspective in Western art. I also learned that when Masaccio completed this painting, he was in his early 20s, and It was one of only a few works that he completed before he died at the young age of 27. As I learned more about the details of that painting, my respect for it grew, and my respect also for its spiritual message grew. Another painting had a very strong influence on me in my life. As a child, I lived in the Sugar House area of Salt Lake City. Our ward met in a lovely old meeting house that was done in English Tudor style, and the chapel had a high vaulted ceiling. It was filled with beautiful oak woodwork. And at the front of the chapel was a large 
mural of the sacred grove. Each week as we met in sacrament meeting, I gazed on that painting. Now, I don't remember any of the words that were spoken over the pulpit there, but what I do remember are the sweet promptings of the Spirit that I felt as a child in that building. And every time I see the image of this painting or this image comes to mind, those sweet feelings of the Spirit return. Now, the arts have always been important for the church. Shortly after the pioneers entered the Salt Lake Valley, even though they had the challenge of cultivating a a desert soil, one of the first things that they did was build a theater. And shortly thereafter, Salt Lake became the center for the arts in the Mountain West, as it still is. There are many touching stories of artists and musicians, actors and writers who sacrificed much to devote their artistic talents to the building of the kingdom. Among my favorites is the story of the Paris Art Mission. In 1890, John Hafen, Loris Pratt, and John B. Fairbanks, who was my great-grandfather, made a proposal to the First Presidency that they be called as art missionaries to study at the academies in Paris, which were the finest art schools of the time. As they presented the proposal to the First Presidency, or shortly thereafter, they climbed to the top of Ensign Peak and offered a prayer that their proposal would be accepted. The First Presidency called them to be art missionaries and uh, gave them the call as missionaries with a special purpose. They then left for two years of service in Paris studying at the art schools. Their sadness at leaving their young families for two years is well expressed in these words by my great-grandfather. I bade farewell to my wife, my family, and my home and set out for a foreign land. Four of my darling little ones accompanied me to the depot where I kissed their little faces, knowing that I would not see them again for two years. On the Denver and Rio Grande train, I found Loris Pratt, one of my fellow students. At Springville, a large crowd had assembled. In the midst of the crowd, we saw John Hafen. His eyes were red as he slowly made his way to the train. All aboard came the cry of the conductor, and we were soon speeding eastward. After a few moments of silent reflection, we began to talk of our plans for the future, and in that we found consolation. Once in Paris, the artists began their studies at the Julian Academy, which was the most prestigious art school at the time, and there they studied from live models and from casts in a very strict academic environment. Eventually, they broke from that environment and went into the French countryside to paint landscapes in the Impressionist tradition, and that was the style then that they continued for the remainder of their careers. John Hafen of that style wrote, In paintings that you may see hereafter, cease to look for mechanical effect or minute finish, for individual leaves, blades of grass, or aped imitation of things, but look for smell, for soul, for feeling, for the beautiful in line and color. This style is evidence in their paintings, which are on display in several of the local museums. Now, I believe that some of the most profound spiritual messages can be found in artistic works that are overtly religious. Those of you who are here, I'd like you to take a moment or two as you leave this building to observe the Joseph Smith statue that is in the atrium just to the west of this auditorium. During the unveiling of that statue, Welder Eyring said, I hope that as young people through the generations see this statue, they will realize that the building is named for Joseph Smith. And though the statue portrays him, this piece of art represents 
that moment when Joseph learned that there was a way for the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ to be unlocked fully. Because of what Joseph saw and what began at this moment, the Savior was able through this great and valiant servant and through others that he sent to restore power and privilege. That power and privilege allows us and all who live to have the benefit of Jesus Christ's atonement in our lives. Joseph Smith is looking up at the figures not shown. In music, we find some of the greatest expressions of the gospel. Although I have listened to it many times, Handel's Messiah continues to inspire in me a profound gratitude and admiration for the Savior and his atonement. Imagine how Handel must have felt moments after writing the Hallelujah Chorus when he is reported to have said, I did think I did see all heaven before me in the great God himself. Now, artistic works, however, do not necessarily need to be overtly religious in order to convey a religious feeling. Great works of music, drama, film, dance, literature, and visual art can teach principles of love, morality, purity, and respect for God's creation. A painting by John Hafen in the Museum of Church History and Art in Salt Lake City depicts a young girl dressed in white standing among the hollyhocks in a sea of green. Although the painting does not overtly depict a religious topic, it exalts the innocence and purity of childhood in the midst of God's creation. Now, I have always felt a deep reverence for the intricacy and beauty of nature. While I was an undergraduate student at BYU, I became very interested in genetics. As I studied the biological sciences, I fell in love with biology, and I came to view the creation of life in a much broader sense than before. I now view creation as not something that occurred long ago, but a process that continues today of which we have the chance to participate. Through the study of, of biology, we were able to glimpse how the earth and all of life was and still is created. Several scientists have shared this sense of wonder as they have spoken of the forest canopy as being like a cathedral ceiling or of microbes, animals, and plants as God's creations with whom we share the earth. For example, Francis Collins, who was the director of the Human Genome Project, one of the greatest undertakings in the history of science, said the following, When something is revealed about the human genome, I experience a feeling of awe at the realization that humanity now knows something that only God knew before. It is a deeply moving sensation that helps me appreciate the spiritual side of life and also makes the practice of science more rewarding. A lot of scientists really don't know what they are missing by not exploring their spiritual feelings. A remarkable number of prominent scientists have both past and present have expressed their own religious feelings. And I think it's appropriate at BYU to share some of their writings. As a geneticist, one of my favorite scientists, in fact, probably my favorite scientist, is Gregor Mendel, who was a 19th century Augustinian monk. Mendel is well known as the founder of genetics because of his experiments with peas that he conducted in the 1850s and 60s. I have my students read his work because it is one of the best examples of the application of the scientific method. His classic paper says nothing about his religious feelings. However, and because of that, some historians have tried to say that he was not a religious person. However, when we read his religious writings, we can see some of the profound messages that he had to offer. 
This is a quotation from an English translation of a poem that he wrote. Wherefore was man created? Wherefore did into a pinch of dust an unfathomably exalted being breathe the breath of life? Assuredly, the Most High, who so wisely shaped the round world, and who for his own sage purposes fashioned the worm out of dust, created man also for some definite reason. Assuredly, the capacities of the mind prove that for it a lofty aim is reserved. But unfading are the laurels of him who earnestly and zealously strives to cultivate his mind. Now, as we study the sciences, we are studying the details of creation. The words of Fyodor Dostoevsky from his classic work of literature, The Brothers Karamazov, I think summarize very well the message that I would like to convey in my devotional. Love all of God's creation, the whole and every grain of sand in it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day. And you will come at last to comprehend the whole world with an all-embracing love. I bear you my testimony that he lives in his holy name. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Daniel J. Fairbanks. And now we'll hear from Ross Spencer for his address, Scholarship and Faith. When Carl G. Mazur was called by Brigham Young to come down here and rescue the struggling Brigham Young Academy, President Young gave him a famous charge. He said, Brother Mazur, I want you to remember that you ought not to teach even the alphabet or the multiplication tables without the Spirit of God. That is all. God bless you. Goodbye. This remains at the core of what we do here at BYU, and it's not easy. Balancing is hard, as all dancers and gymnasts know. And the intellectual balancing in President Young's challenge is hard, too. One of these hard things grows out of the emphasis on, quote, logical reasoning and critical analysis, unquote, that appears in the aims of a BYU education. I've been involved in logic and criticism for a long time now, and it's often an ugly and unfriendly business. Unlike the title of the popular book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, by Dr. Thomas Harris, critical analysis often feels more like, I'm okay, you're an idiot. When I write papers and submit them to editors of journals, I have a great sense of happiness and accomplishment when the paper is out. But the editor doesn't just congratulate me and schedule my paper for publication. It is first sent to a few of my colleagues for review, and after a few weeks comes the dreaded day when these reviews arrive. The first time I got one of these, I just opened it and happily started to read. I couldn't even finish it in one sitting. The comments were so cruel. With later papers, I learned to let it sit for a day, to steal myself for the ordeal, and then was tempted to look for strategies that would get the paper published with the minimum number of changes. The fighting and the cynicism didn't feel like what I'd signed up for when I went into science. It seems that for many of us, the more we learn, the more we get puffed up with pride. Intolerance then sets in, and balance becomes impossible. This process is described often in the Book of Mormon, and there are many warnings against it. A really good one is given by Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 9. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one! Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men! When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, 
and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. But to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. I received a similar message from a rather unlikely source early in my career. When I was just out of graduate school, I attended my first meeting of the American Physical Society in New York City. It was a heady experience, and a highlight of the event was something that was arranged by the conference organizers. The great science fiction writer Isaac Asimov had been invited to speak to us, and he began by telling us about something that happened to him when he was a young student. He was hired to help a historian do research on social resistance to technological change. Hour after hour, he sat in the university library and wrote down the stories he found in the books there, stories about people protesting the invention of things like machines to spin thread and weave cloth, steam-powered trains, automobiles, and airplanes. All of these advances were perceived by the general public either to be physically dangerous or to be a threat to the livelihoods of workers in trades that were about to be destroyed by these advances. He regaled us with these stories for a long time, and they were very funny. But it went on so long that I began to wonder where he was going. Finally, he got to the point. He said that when he started to write science fiction, he remembered all of this work he had done. And so while his fellow writers were all rhapsodizing about the thrill of rockets and space travel long before such things were possible, he wrote a story about how the local populace showed up at the launch site with torches and pitchforks in opposition to space travel. Years later, when rockets and travel outside the atmosphere really did become possible, there were protests, and many of Mr. Asimov's colleagues were astounded that he had predicted so far in advance that this would occur. Why, Mr. Asimov then asked us, among all these talented and visionary writers, was I the only one who was able to predict that this resistance to change would occur? He let us think about this question for an uncomfortably silent minute, and then he leaned into the microphone and said in an intense voice, which I still vividly remember, It's because people are stupid. <laughs> and he included himself. He said that if he hadn't had this idea pounded into his head daily for several months, he was sure that he wouldn't have been able to foresee it either. And it was clear, as he concluded his remarks, that he thought we were stupid too. The lesson I take today from my memory of this experience and from my reading of the Book of Mormon is that the proper attitude to have when confronted with the vast complexity both of the universe and of the ideas and activities of the people who live on this small planet orbiting an ordinary star far away from the center of things in our galaxy is profound humility. Consider, for example, this picture, which is familiar to anyone who studied chemistry or physics. These fuzzy balls are supposed to represent what the electron does as it hovers around the proton of the hydrogen nucleus. But the pictures don't really represent an electron. Electrons are always detected as little tiny dots of mass and energy. When we detect one, it isn't fuzzy at all. So what is the fuzziness? Well, it's a representation of where we might find one of these little dots. We never find one in the dark places in the diagram, only in the shaded places. We try to make sense of this by saying that the electron has both wave and particle natures. But if you push us to explain how such a crazy thing can be, we really can't. If you continue to push us, we will show you some horrible equations and assure you that they describe where an electron dot might be found, on average, with impressive precision. 
But if you ask us why the world is built in this weird and incomprehensible way, we really have no good answer. All we can say is that the mathematics seems to work. I've had similar experiences in my spiritual life. At Christmas time, after my first child was born, Margo and I traveled back to Utah from Wisconsin, where I was studying physics. When my daughter Melanie got an ear infection, we found that we were missing two really important things—insurance and money—two things that many of you may have trouble with, too. She cried and cried, and it started to look like a budget-busting Sunday night trip to the emergency room was going to be required. In desperation, I went to a bedroom in my in-laws' house where we were staying, closed the door, held her in my arms, and gave her a priesthood blessing. She immediately settled down, went to sleep, and the next day a kind doctor treated her for cheap in his office for her ear infection. Now, I don't really understand the details of why this works any more than I understand why the mathematics of quantum theory can predict where electrons will be found. But the priesthood and science both help us live better in this complex world. It seems to me that the right thing to do is to follow the pragmatic counsel of Brigham Young. He taught that we should use everything we can lay our hands on, both physically and spiritually, when faced with problems that need solving. He said, If we are sick and ask the Lord to heal us, and to do all for us that is necessary to be done, according to my understanding of the gospel of salvation, I might as well ask the Lord to cause my wheat and corn to grow without my plowing the ground and casting in the seed. It appears consistent to me to apply every remedy that comes within the range of my knowledge and to ask my Father in heaven in the name of Jesus Christ to sanctify that application to the healing of my body. But suppose we were traveling in the mountains and one or two were taken sick without anything in the world in the shape of healing medicine within our reach. What should we do? According to my faith, ask the Lord Almighty to heal the sick. This is our privilege when so situated that we cannot get anything to help ourselves, and then the Lord and His servants can do all. Dr. Henry Eyring, the great LDS chemist and father of President Henry B. Eyring, was a great example of how to combine professional excellence with faith and humility. He was world-famous for his work on chemical reactions and was also known both to his scientific colleagues and to members of the Church as a man of faith and devotion. In speaking to youth, he once said, I am happy to represent a people who throughout their history have encouraged learning and scholarship in all fields of honorable endeavor, a people who have among their spiritual teachings such lofty concepts as these. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. A man cannot be saved in ignorance. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. We learned from the Prophet Joseph Smith, Brother Eyring said, from the Prophet Joseph Smith that man lived before he was born, that life was a school where man is sent to learn the things that the Lord intends, and that he continues on into life after death. Death is not the end. It is but one more step in a great forward march made possible by the redemption wrought by the Savior. This is the true spirit of science, constant and eternal seeking. For Brother Eyring, however, the things that we discover in our seeking are no occasion for pride. He continued, Contemplating the awe-inspiring order in the universe, extending from the almost infinitely small to the infinitely large, one is overwhelmed with its grandeur and with the limitless wisdom which conceived, created, and governs it all. Our understanding, great as it can be, 
can be nothing but the wide-eyed wonder of the child when measured against the Creator's omniscience. Brother Eyring wanted to see the whole picture, physical and spiritual combined, but even he couldn't see how to fit everything together. But he had faith that the whole picture existed. In a talk given here at BYU in the 1970s entitled, interestingly, You Don't Have to Make All the Mistakes There Are, he said, So this, then, is sort of the picture that I would give you and end on the note that I can't see any difference between the kinds of arguments that you make to support religion and the arguments you make to support science. I understand, of course, that there are contradictions of all kinds in science, and there are contradictions between science and religion, and there are contradictions between various parts of religion and every human mind. And then with a twinkle in his eye he said, But not in God's mind. In a billion years, you'll have all your problems solved if you can wait. I take from the counsel of President Young and Dr. Eyring that we should seek all the good we can from the world of scholarship and also seek the blessings of the Lord by asking in faith, by asking and having faith in Him. Even if we can't see how everything fits together into a complete picture, we can have faith that there is such a picture and find joy working and serving in both realms. Looking back on the journey that I have taken from my perspective in my advancing years, it feels like I have been trying to build an arch bridge like this one in the Sydney Harbor. The two parts seem to be reaching for each other, and the finished span promises to be wonderful. But with Brother Eyring, I now don't expect my bridge to be finished anytime soon. I am confident that truth is a great unity, but I am just not smart enough to figure it out. I know this isn't very satisfying intellectually, but I have come to find some peace in the observation of Isaac Asimov. Sometimes I really am stupid. In my fumbling attempts to understand how physics works, I use more erasers than pencil lead, and the most common key for me to press when I am writing computer code is the delete key. But flashes of success come too. It really is exciting to discover how something works, and it is equally exciting to feel the thrill of knowing that the Lord has worked through me to bless someone else's life. Even though we can't see how the two spans of the bridge come together, we can make some connections between these two spans by the way we live our lives. I recommend this course to each of you. Let me close with a few examples. I have a testimony of the power of Amulek's admonition given in Alma chapter 34. He said, Therefore may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith under repentance, that ye begin to call upon His holy name, that He would have mercy upon you. Yea, cry unto Him for mercy, for He is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto Him. Cry unto Him when ye are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Cry unto Him in your houses, yea, over all your household, both morning, midday, and evening. I testify that this works for all fields and for all flocks. My field is physics. Yours might be linguistics, construction management, or nursing. Or maybe you are in business management. You will have flocks to tend. Whatever the area of study, the Lord has mastered it. If you ask Him, He can help you in your studies. I have felt comfort, confidence, and a much-needed flow of good ideas come through prayer about technical matters and can promise you that the Lord is interested in every part of your life. Our studies can also inform our faith. Jacob is right. It is good to be learned. My life has been richly blessed by the appreciation I gained here at BYU for art, literature, and music. 
the more technical things you learn in your studies are valuable too, even if you don't major in them. You should use your critical thinking skills to carefully examine propositions that are made to you, whether by well-disguised criminals or by those who are well-meaning but uninformed. You may be invited to participate in business ventures promising fabulous rates of return, offered wonderful elixirs that will cure everything that ails you, or be given the opportunity to invest in the 200 miles per gallon SUV whose development is being suppressed by the government and the oil companies. Your studies in economics, physiology, and the physical sciences will come in handy here. Situations like this deserve the best critical analysis you can muster, and being learned can save you thousands and thousands of dollars. There are also matters of public policy on which we as citizens must vote. It will take the combined learning and faith of all of us if we are to preserve our society and our planet. But a word of caution. It is important to learn when to use critical thinking and when to be still and listen. Around the time I was a student here, a young lady in one of the BYU wards bore her testimony on Fast Sunday by saying, I know that my roommates are true. There was a flood of letters to the Daily Universe about the incident sparked by those who made fun of the young lady. Testimony meeting is not such a good time to apply critical analysis. Those who were wise and compassionate at the time, however, were able to look beyond the awkward use of the English language to focus more on what was being said in the language of the heart. The Savior counsels us in the Sermon on the Mount. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. We echo this counsel when we sing the sacrament hymn, In Humility Our Savior, which was played so beautifully by Sister Lawler in her prelude music today. Fill our hearts with sweet forgiving. Teach us tolerance and love. I hope that in spite of all that we learn and achieve, and I hope that we learn and achieve in abundance, that we will also learn patience, humility, tolerance, and love. Finally, please stay close to the Church. Do the simple things. Have daily prayer. Read the scriptures. Hold home evening. Attend your Church meetings and worship in the temple. When I was a graduate student, I had some trouble balancing my spiritual life and my scholarly life. Most of the other graduate students didn't have children in Church callings, and I felt like a juggler who was about to drop all the balls he was trying to keep in the air. To make ends meet, we sometimes took care of the children of people with money while they flew to the Caribbean to escape the bleak Wisconsin winter. And After we would get the children to bed, ours and theirs, I would do my physics homework at the kitchen table. One night, after working for hours on a particularly difficult assignment, I knelt on the kitchen floor to ask the Lord for some help and encouragement. I also asked for some kind of a testimony boost as well. The answer I got surprised me a little. It went something like this. I have given you a testimony, and you have made covenants. That should be enough for you now. Just hang on, and the blessings will come. And the blessings have come. I have been molded and shaped by the things I have learned in Church over the years and by the service I have given and callings I have received. President Hinckley taught that the Lord's program is to make bad men and women good and good men and women better as He prepares us for eternal life. Participation in His kingdom here on earth can change us in wonderful ways if we are faithful.
In closing, I would like to read this passage from Jacob chapter 4. Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of Him, and it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. For behold, by the power of his word man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Wherefore, if God being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created, O then why not able to command the earth or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. I testify that the Lord lives, that he loves us, and that he will bless us in all our righteous endeavors at both ends of the bridge as we work in humility. We may not see it in all its completed glory, but it is there. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is By Learning and Faith. We've just heard from Ross Spencer. After the break, we'll return with Jamie L. Jensen for Faith and Science, Symbiotic Pathways to Truth. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is By Learning and Faith. Next is Jamie L. Jensen, Associate Professor in the College of Life Sciences at the time of this address, titled Faith and Science, Symbiotic Pathways to Truth. I want to talk about an unnecessary battle that has been raging for centuries, a battle between faith and science. In this case, however, the conflict is tragic and completely unnecessary. It is a false dichotomy, two avenues of seeking truth in a world in such desperate need of truth. Truths found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to his commandments, and truths found through the diligent study of his scientific processes here on earth, can combine into a beautiful blessing of knowledge that can enhance our lives, save our children, bless our earth, and help us return back to our heavenly home with the blessings of exaltation. Unlike the political turmoil raging in the heart of our nation today, this turmoil can be laid to rest. I hope that through my remarks today, I can help you take this first step towards peace and understanding. Let me first start with definitions. All too often we find ourselves in a battle of semantics, fueled by misunderstanding of basic terminology. So let's define these two symbiotic ways of knowing. Knowing through scientific explanation is a process through which we gather evidence from the natural world to find explanations for natural phenomena. Knowing through religious faith is a process through which we gather spiritual evidence through study and revelation to find explanations for spiritual truths. I'll begin with the first. As a scientist, I find comfort and friendly familiarity in the walls of a scientific laboratory. I find joy and wonder in the beauty of logic and evidence and all things analytical. I find comfort and safety in the defendable explanations provided by science. It's just the way I think, much to the chagrin of my husband sometimes, who wishes, and rightfully so, that I would use my spiritual brain a little more. So let me share the beauty I see with you so that you will better understand my obsession. Science is a process through which we describe the natural world and find explanations for natural phenomena. 
In a beautiful editorial written by Dr. Bruce Alberts, a biochemist and then the editor-in-chief of the journal Science, Dr. Alberts explains the difference between little s science and big s science. Little s science is the process of experimentation through which big s science is eventually born. Little s science is exciting, dynamic, collaborative, and wonderful, but it is tentative, amenable, and still under investigation. Big S science emerges from little s science as a collective public knowledge, universal and free of contradiction, but only after repeated confirmation by independent, robust investigations. Often we get caught up in the little s science and we impatiently reject a scientific idea simply because it is in its infancy and may seemingly contradict what we think we know from a religious standpoint. Other times we foolishly reject big s science because we don't fully understand how it plays in harmony with our religious beliefs. Both are an error born of impatience. I will talk more of that in a moment, but let me quote President Hinckley in praising the benefits of science to mankind. Quote, the 20th century has been the best of all centuries. The life expectancy of man has been extended by more than 25 years. The fruits of science have been manifest everywhere. This has been an age of enlightenment. End quote. So how sure are we of scientific theories? Pretty darn sure. Now let's talk about the nature or seeking of religious truths. It is an entirely different epistemology, but not entirely different in the process. The main difference is in the evidence. When I was in graduate school, my major professor often challenged me about my belief in God and how I could possibly reconcile it with the science I was studying. He was clearly not a believer. I argued that the God hypothesis is not testable through scientific means. He argued that it was testable and that the evidence clearly showed that God does not exist. He claimed that for religious people, they accept without evidence and would even ignore the evidence against God if it was presented to them. I answered back that although I was religious, I was not one who accepts without evidence. When I was 17, I decided to find out for myself if God was real. Since then, I have been convinced again and again by evidence that God does in fact exist. Unfortunately, the type of evidence I have to offer is mine and mine alone. It's not the type of evidence that I can share with anyone else because it's based on intense, undeniable feelings, as well as personal experiences that just wouldn't mean the same thing if I explained them to someone else. However, I have performed tests. Let's take a simple example in the Book of Mormon. At the end of the book, Moroni offers us a test. He says, Behold, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. So here is a clear test with a clear prediction. My test, ask God. My prediction, if this record is true, my proposed hypothesis, and I ask God, my experiment is to pray about it, then I will be given confirmation by the Holy Ghost. That's the evidence. Here's where the process differs. The evidence here is different. It is not tangible, measurable evidence by a scientific definition, but it is real evidence nonetheless. However, this test assumes that you know how to recognize the Holy Ghost and the evidence. In other words, that you have the necessary tools to detect the evidence. These spiritual tools take practice to develop, but they do exist, and you can develop them. In terms of science, there is nowhere that this type of hypothesis testing fits in. However, this is not to say that this spiritual hypothesis testing is in any way less valid. It is just a different way of approaching truth. 
Interestingly, my professor's response to this was, quote, thanks for sharing. I think you have made your case very clear. As I think you said, your type of spiritual evidence cannot count as scientific evidence. Recall that replication by others is a key. Can others replicate your test and get the same results, which must be open for all to see? If not, then it does not count, end quote. I did not respond to this, but I should have responded with, absolutely, and I'll teach you how. What a wonderful missionary opportunity I missed. This test is absolutely 100% repeatable, and everyone can receive the spiritual evidence if they choose to develop the spiritual tools necessary to detect that evidence. I want to go back to something my professor had claimed, that the scientific evidence proves there is no God. He is gravely mistaken. And this misconception has driven many people away from God in their pursuit of science. This misconception is that science is atheistic. In a well-done study by my colleagues at Arizona State University, they surveyed over 1,000 college students and found that 48% of them believe that in order to accept evolution, you have to reject God. They also found a direct negative correlation between the atheistic viewpoint and acceptance of science. This misconception is harmful and counterproductive to science and religion as it drives an unnecessary wedge between these two ways of knowing. Science is no more atheistic than it is theistic. There is no scientific evidence for or against the existence of God. As we already discussed, the evidence of God's existence does not even belong within the epistemology of science. It is a different epistemology altogether. Science is agnostic. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, was recently awarded the Templeton Prize for his work in reconciling science and religion. In his address, he described his attempt to prove atheism. He said, quote, I began a journey to try to understand why intellectually sophisticated people could actually believe in God. And to my dismay, I found that atheism turned out to be the least rational of all the choices. To quote Chesterton, atheism is the most daring of all dogmas, for it is the assertion of a universal negative. Scientists aren't supposed to do that, he remarked with a chuckle. Let me provide a simple definition of these three terms. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. Theism is the belief that there is a God. Agnosticism is the absence of belief. In science, we never say, I believe in gravity or I believe in evolution. Rather, in scientific hypothesis testing, we accept gravity as the best explanation for phenomena such as an apple falling from a tree. We accept that evolution is the best explanation for the existence of modern day diversity. There is no belief involved. Science as a way of knowing is an agnostic approach. To claim that science proves there is no God is just as unscientific as claiming that science proves there is a God. In other words, being an atheist is just as much a belief system as theism. I recently conducted a workshop for biology professors to offer them tools to teach evolution to religious audiences, and I taught this important principle, that science is agnostic. I got this response from one of the participants. Quote, earlier this summer, I attended your evolution reconciliation session. I went into it with the following mindset. I believe that God or something bigger couldn't possibly exist because there was no evidence for it. But in your discussion, OM gosh, science supports agnosticism because there is no evidence God could exist or not exist. We cannot make a conclusion. This blew my mind. I have had a paradigm shift. I don't think I can identify as an atheist anymore. End quote. This mindset, if taught to our youth and if understood by us all, can potentially dissolve the artificial wedge we have driven between science and faith. This brings me to another important principle I'd like to discuss that, if understood correctly, can help to save your faith. This principle is to avoid a God of the gaps. What is a God of the gaps? 
It is when an individual inserts God as an explanation for anything that science cannot currently explain. For example, the ancient Greeks created gods to explain weather patterns for which they had no current explanation. Zeus was the god of lightning, Poseidon the god of earthquakes and hurricanes. However, once science became advanced enough to explain these phenomena, their gods disappeared. It is dangerous to believe in God because his existence resolves uncertainty. His existence explains things you cannot explain. For example, how can life forms be so complex? Well, they must have been created in their present form by God. What happens when science comes up with a reasonable and even testable explanation for this gap in our understanding that evolution has led to the great diversity of life we see? Does your faith disappear just because something you attributed to God can be explained by science? It shouldn't, and it won't if your belief is not based in gaps. A paradigm shift must occur such that your belief in God is for an entirely different reason, not because he can explain the gaps in your current understanding, but because he gives you spiritual understanding and you have felt his presence in your life. Again, this is spiritual evidence, not scientific evidence. Let me share just briefly an experience I had. This is going to sound like the start of a really corny joke, so just bear with me. I was sitting in a restaurant in Washington, D.C. with a Catholic priest and a humanist. By the way, humanists believe that human experience and rational thinking provide all knowledge and morals, so they reject the idea of a god. Both men have become friends of mine through my work on the broader social impacts committee of the Human Origins Project at the Smithsonian. We were discussing morality and what it meant for the existence of God. The priest, taking somewhat of a God of the gaps approach, suggested that human morality is direct evidence of the existence of God, that we can't explain it scientifically, so we must attribute it to God. The humanist, taking a secular approach, suggested that moral tendencies simply increase fitness and are therefore evolutionarily selected for. In other words, those who naturally tended to be kind and not kill each other through genetic programming were more likely to be welcomed into society, chosen by a mate, and able to pass those moral genes on. I agreed with the humanist. This idea has been well-studied and well-supported by scientific study. However, my response to both of them was this. Whether human morality evolved or was endowed upon us by God is irrelevant to my conviction that God is real. I believe in God because I have evidence of a different kind, a non-scientific kind, but real nonetheless. I believe God exists because he has spoken to me in very real ways, because I feel his presence in my life, because I have chosen to open the lines of communication with him, and he has made himself known to me. This looks different to everyone because everyone has taken different efforts to allow God into their lives, but it is available to all. Christ taught that if you will build your foundation upon him and his teachings— rather than on unexplainable phenomena or whims of mysticism, when the rains descend and the winds blow and the doubts beat upon your house, you will not fall, for you are built upon a rock. I want to discuss another issue that helps preserve your faith, and that issue is dogmatism versus a comfort with uncertainty. In our world today, dogmatism abounds. Dogmatism is, quote, the tendency to lay down principles is incontrovertibly true without consideration of evidence or the opinion of others, end quote. Does this sound familiar in today's political climate? Well, it abounds also within the realms of both science and religion. In science, there is a growing extremism called scientism that claims that science is the only source of knowledge and any pursuit outside of that is fantasy. 
As Dr. Thomas Burnett, philosopher and science historian, so aptly put it, quote, it is one thing to celebrate science for its achievements and remarkable ability to explain a wide variety of phenomena in the natural world, but to claim that there is nothing knowable outside the scope of science would be similar to a successful fisherman saying that whatever he can't catch in his nets does not exist. Once you accept that science is the only source of human knowledge, you have adopted a philosophical position, scientism, that cannot be verified or falsified by science itself. It is, in a word, unscientific, end quote. Likewise, we find extreme orthodoxy within religion that rejects all other avenues for seeking truth, claiming that truth can only come from revelation concerning the creation of our beautiful world to all other aspects of human life. Both worldviews put limits upon human inquiry. Neither reality is a healthy place in which to live and to learn and progress. We must become more comfortable with uncertainty. Think about it. From a spiritual standpoint, how many of you would claim that you know everything there is to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ? I certainly wouldn't claim that. Likewise, no self-respecting scientist who truly understands the nature of science would claim that we know all truths about the natural world. We still don't fully understand all the causes of cancer or how to cure it. If we thought we knew everything, the scientific enterprise would come to a screeching halt. Thankfully, the more I learn about science, the more I understand the depths of that which we are yet to know. Dogmatism in science or in religion closes down your ability to learn and progress. If something seems to conflict between what science reveals and what you have learned through your religious faith, don't abandon one or the other. Hold off judgment, be patient, and keep an open mind to truth from both sides. As then Elder Russell M. Nelson in the dedication of the BYU Life Sciences Building said, quote, There is no conflict between science and religion. Conflict only arises from an incomplete knowledge of either science or religion or both. End quote. Do not be so proud that you cannot accept that you may not know everything. Be patient, stay faithful, and in time, understanding will come. And please keep in mind that your eternal salvation does not depend on your complete understanding of science. If learning scientific theories puts your faith in jeopardy, choose your faith. Choose your faith until you can better understand the science, or until science can provide better explanations. I firmly believe that both truths, religious and scientific, exist in harmony. Now that we have discussed and we hopefully better understand these two epistemologies, I want to turn my discussion to how using both ways of knowing can deeply bless your lives. Let me share an example of how it has profoundly blessed my life in the midst of deep trial and sorrow. After being married for a few years and just after finishing my master's degree at BYU, the Lord blessed us with a child. Everything seemed normal with the pregnancy until I delivered. Thankfully, my son was just fine, but I nearly bled to death during the birth and then again six weeks later. It turns out I have a condition called Asherman's syndrome, which causes excessive growth of scar tissue in my womb. As a consequence, when I get pregnant, the baby's placenta grows in lobes in and around scar tissue, resembling more of an octopus than the nice round organ it's supposed to be. It also makes delivering the placenta extremely difficult. However, we did not learn this at the time, and after an emergency DNC, I thought all was well. Upon becoming pregnant with our second child during my PhD program at Arizona State University, signs began to indicate that all was not well. After a frantic drive to the emergency room in the middle of the night, having awakened in a pool of blood, we found out that our precious baby had implanted right at the opening, having nowhere else to go due to scar tissue, a condition called placenta previa. After six more months of hospital visits, scares of losing him and being driven around in a disabilities cart to all my classes at ASU, I delivered a second healthy baby boy. And once again, I nearly bled to death, this time quite significantly, to the point of some serious complications in the need for transfusions. 
It was then that I discovered my problem, and I was told that I would likely not be able to have any more children. Now, I had two beautiful boys, and I certainly felt blessed beyond measure. But I had always had it in my mind that I would have a bigger family, and this news was devastating to me. At this point, I had two problems to fix, two puzzles to solve, and I needed two solutions. Number one, my soul had been injured. I longed for more children, and my heart ached. How do I heal my soul? Number two, my body was broken. How do I heal my body? I know that the Lord can do all things. He could remove my trials from me and grant me a miraculous healing without me lifting a finger. But I can tell you with fervent belief that my trials have a purpose. They have made me stronger and more empathetic. I am grateful for my trials. As it was explained to Joseph Smith, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. So I needed this trial, and the Lord had a plan. I could have just sat back and prayed, putting all responsibility in God and waiting for him to bestow a miracle upon me. Instead, I went and searched diligently out of the best books, learned all that I could learn, and sought the guidance of the medical community in helping me navigate these uncharted waters, all with a prayer continually in my heart that God would help me bring my own miracle to pass. After finding a world-renowned surgeon who specializes in Asherman syndrome, my husband and I headed to California for several surgeries, long agonizing nights in hotels sick with pain medication, and complicated recoveries. But a year later, I brought my son Gage into the world, and after another round of surgeries, would bring my fourth son Emmett into the world four years later. I have been greatly blessed. So many women with this condition never have children at all, and I feel deep sorrow and sympathy for their plight. For whatever reason, the Lord saw it fit to bless me with a miracle. But that miracle came about through the angels who work in medicine and the healing of my soul through much prayer and supplication. I am grateful that I can have both at work in my life. Let me share another story. When I was a young child, I suffered from anxiety that often manifested itself as a sour stomach. Many nights you could find me stranded in the bathroom praying my little heart out for relief. My mom would always say to me, God helps those who help themselves, as she would hand me a cup of baking soda water to drink. The stuff was nasty, and I would have rather just had God come down and answer my prayers. But it turns out that the baking soda water was the answer to my prayers, and it worked every time. I guess my mom was unaware of Tums. Speaking of agency to a group of African saints, Elder David A. Bednar stated, quote, You and I are agents. We have the power in us to act, not simply be acted upon. End quote. The Lord has given us agency, and with that, He expects us to act using all the knowledge and understanding we have gained here on earth. I firmly believe that God wants us to act upon our scientific understanding and bring about God's blessings of healing and a better life. God has given us the gift of intellect and he expects us to use the laws of nature to better our lives. When my son was just six years old, he suffered a physical attack that caused his fragile young mind to break, as it were. Prayers and fasting, pleading with the Lord, and years of medical attention and amazing medications have brought him back from a seemingly hopeless place to a happy and healthy life. It was not just prayers that helped him, although those certainly helped. It was the use of the knowledge the medical community has gained that ultimately brought about God's miraculous gift of healing. We acted instead of being acted upon. And through this experience, I learned something about the atonement that I hadn't understood before, even after growing up in the church. 
I always thought the atonement was just for sinners, but it goes so much deeper than that. When Christ was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt all the pains and sufferings of us all. Elder Neil L. Anderson said, quote, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through the incalculable gift of his atonement, not only saves us from death and offers us, through repentance, forgiveness for our sins, but he also stands ready to save us from the sorrows and pains of our wounded souls. End quote. The pain that Christ felt was so great that he bled from every pore. It wasn't just godly sorrow for wrongdoing. It was the pain of a mother longing for children, the pain of a parent whose child has been harmed, the pain of a child who suffers trauma. It was all the pain we would ever suffer, and thus the atonement is for that too. It can help my suffering heart to heal. It can give me the strength to forgive those that have harmed me or my family. It can comfort my children through their pains and sorrows. It can comfort you through yours. It is for all of that, not just for sin. The deep and profound spiritual understanding of truth has aided in our healing process in a way that scientific understanding never could. Likewise, the scientific understanding that helps us deal with the physical realities of Asherman's and my son's trials equally impact our healing process. Without these beautiful truths discovered through science, our lives would be crippled, and we would not have become who we are today. It is these two ways of seeking truth brought together in harmony that have healed and continue to heal my soul. Symbiosis is a term we use in biology to indicate an interaction between two different organisms living together in a dependent and often beneficial relationship. Likewise, faith and science should live symbiotically in our hearts and in our minds as we search for truth in our lives. Let me share one last picture of a little book that my son built while sitting in sacrament meeting one Sunday morning, totally unprompted by me, I might add. On one side of his book, he had written the book of God, and on the other cover, the book of plants. On the inside, he'd had me write a scripture from Revelations, one he was practicing for primary that week, on one page, and a list of his favorite garden plants, including moonberries, on the other page. For him, the wonders of the scriptures and the wonders of science easily fit within the same book with absolutely no conflict. That we may have such pure and simple understanding of these symbiotic pathways to truth is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was By Learning and Faith with thoughts from Daniel J. Fairbanks, Ross Spencer, and Jamie L. Jensen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.